The views expressed on Science for the People are not necessarily the views of this station, its affiliates, sponsors, or advertisers. This week on Science for the People, we are looking at why ants seem to act much smarter in groups than on their own, and how we can study their swarm intelligence using robots. We'll be speaking with Stephen Pratt, Associate Professor in the School of Life Sciences at Arizona State University, about how ants in a colony work together to look for things they need, like nest sites and food. Then we'll speak with Simon Garnier, Assistant Professor in the Department of Biological Sciences at the New Jersey Institute of Technology, about ants that can make living structures out of their own bodies. Welcome to Science for the People. I'm Anika Hazra. With me today is Stephen Pratt, Associate Professor in the School of Life Sciences at Arizona State University. Stephen, welcome to Science for the People. Thanks for having me. All right, so tell me about the kind of research that's conducted in your lab. Well, my lab is mainly interested in understanding how ant colonies and bee colonies are able to act as a highly organized collective intelligence. Uh, So we spend a lot of time uh, giving colonies of ants uh, challenges, like making decisions about where to live or or, uh, what to eat, and then seeing how well they can meet these challenges, and then trying to figure out what are the specific behaviors that they use that allow them to act very uh, intelligently as a group, even though they don't have any kind of well-informed central leaders or, or hierarchical structure that we might expect to see, for example, in a human society. Okay, so can you explain a little more detail what, what does decentralized organization mean? Yes, yeah, so, you know, if you think about... Um, Human organizations, of course, vary a great deal, but normally we think of them as being something that is structured around some kind of hierarchy where there are specialists uh, who are essentially managers who gather data, make decisions, and then issue instructions to the remaining members of the organization. Ants don't do anything like that. There's nobody in charge. There's no uh, sort of leader or manager. There's no one ant that you could sort of, you know, imagine asking, you know, what's the colony up to today? You know, what, what, what kinds of food sources are you evaluating today? And you know, how many workers are you going to send to this food source or that food source? There's nobody who has that kind of information. Instead, they do these very, um, very complex behaviors, especially, you know, making collective decisions, even though there isn't any single ant who's gathered information about all the options and compared them and then figure out which one is the best one. So it's decentralized in that sense that really no one is in charge. Uh, you know, of course, um, most people know that um, ant colonies have an individual called the queen. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the queen is not in any way a leader. Her role is very important. She's, you know, uh, she has a distinctive role because she is the, um, the egg layer, the reproductive, the mother of all the other uh, members of the society. But she's not really their boss. She doesn't know what's going on and tell everybody what to do. Oh, so she's not responsible for laying instructions or anything to the other workers in the colony. No, it's really very much worker driven. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, like, for example, to you know, make it more concrete, if you give um, a colony, say, um, a choice between two feeders and they both have uh, sugar water, which ants like very much. And one of them may be a, a you know, stronger solution, sweeter than the other one. Uh, the colony will figure that out. It'll, it'll learn which one is the better one. And then they will allocate its workforce so that most of the foragers go to the better food source and not to the worst one. And then if you later switch the quality, um, they'll, they'll change their allocation and, and then, uh, move their foragers over to the newly improved, uh, food source. And they do that even though if you follow individual ants, you're not going to find that there's any ant who visited both and then, 
and then figured out which one was the best and then told the other ants where to go. Nor is there any, you know, it's not the case that there's some boss ant back at the nest who communicates with foragers coming from the two sites and figures out by communicating with them which one is the best. There's really nobody who knows, no individual ant who knows uh, which is the best. And yes, the colony as a whole is still able to make that intelligent allocation of labor according to food quality. So why would this decentralized organization ever evolve? Um, what makes this strategy better than others when it comes to communication? Yeah, that's a good question because, um, I mean, you can think of it in general in two ways. One way you could say, well, the reason it evolved is just because the ants aren't capable of anything more, right? Mm -hmm. They're just dealing with the, the constraints of individual uh, performance, just, you know, how much information can an individual ant process? You know, what capabilities do they have as individuals to organize this kind of thing? And I think that kind of constraint is, is undoubtedly important. Um, but I think the more interesting way to look at it is to say, you know, given those constraints, you know, what kind of advantages can they get from a decentralized approach? And there's one very uh, clear advantage, I think, is that they uh, systems like this, decentralized systems are very robust to disturbance. So, you know, if you have one ant who plays a key role, like the, the boss ant, and you remove that ant or the ant is injured or lost, then the colony is in big trouble, right? The whole decision process falls apart. Uh, but if there is no, you know, indispensable ants, pretty much every ant can play, uh, you know, plays a small role and, and you just need a lot of them to, to have the group function, then you can lose a few ants and everything will still work just fine. So, and ant colonies are very robust in that way, and that's and decentralization is part of the reason uh, that that's the case. All right. So, it looks like one of the ant species that you work with specifically is called the crevice-dwelling rock ant. So, did you choose this particular species for the reasons you mentioned previously, or is there something special about them? It's it, it's those reasons plus, uh, you know. As you, as you point out there, these ants live in rock crevices. That was also very appealing about them because, um, I had become interested in, um, in nest site selection, uh, partly through, uh, the work of my uh, PhD advisor, Tom Seeley, who is among many people who's done some very uh, interesting pioneering work on how honeybee colonies, uh, find a nest site and choose it and move into it and, and build their, uh, their colony. As I pointed out, you know, there are some challenges to studying bees. So I was, what I wanted to do was study a, um, a more tractable, tractable species that does something similar. And what's distinct about these ants, uh, and the genus, by the way, is called Temnothorax. So I'll, I may just refer to them as Temnothorax as we talk. Um, what's very distinctive about them compared to, you know, better known ants is that they don't dig their own nests in soil. You know, everybody pictures a sort of anthill where the mm -hmm. colonies dig tunnels in the soil. These ants don't do that. What they do is go find a ready-made nest. They go find a crevice in a rock that already exists, and then they simply move in their colony into that crevice, and they may make some small modifications, build some small walls, things like that. But basically, they look for a preformed nest. And that means that they are very dependent on their ability to scour the uh, landscape where they live, find any good candidate nests, compare them, and then find, figure out which is the best one, and then reach consensus and move into that site. And that's both a very interesting problem and a very hard one to solve. And so uh, I wanted to, to study these ants to figure out how they do it. How would you simulate that kind of nest in a, in a lab setting? Yeah, that's another nice thing about them, actually, because if you think what are, these crevices are literally just that they're like a a few millimeters uh, wide, and they might be as large as the palm of your hand. And so it's not that hard to make an artificial version of that out of glass slides and uh, balsa wood. So we'll take a slat of wood, cut a cavity out of the middle of it, 
sandwich it between the slides and then maybe either cut an entrance through the side in the wood or drill an entrance hole through the glass. And that actually is a pretty satisfying nest uh, for the ants to live in. And the other thing that's good about that design is we can change the quality of it. We can have larger or smaller entrances. We can make the cavity bigger or smaller. We can change the light level inside. We can change the moisture level, all these other things that the ants care about. And that enables us to give them you know, challenges where there's, we have a bunch of nests of different quality and we determine how they are able to, to, to find the best one. Are there any difficulties in studying ants in a lab? Uh, how difficult is it to get a colony from nature and then move it to a lab or multiple colonies? Um, are there any kind of logistical issues you face uh, studying ants in a lab? Yeah, that's, a, you know, it again, that sort of um, challenge varies a lot depending on the species. So there are some, you know, you know, I work in Arizona and there are many really fascinating, uh, gla- glamorous ant species who live in the desert here and who, who, who dig their nests in the ground. But if you want to dig up a colony, say, and bring it into the lab, it's extremely challenging because the, you know, the soil is, is very compacted and hard. It's almost like digging in concrete. So even to, to, um, get a single colony, you might have to, you know, use, uh, you know, a, a backhoe or some sort of, mm-hmm. you know, power equipment. Um, the ants I study on the other hand, because they don't live in the soil, uh, it's just a question of finding a good habitat where they're abundant and then uh, going around and looking in rock crevices until you find um, uh, the ants, a colony living in them. And it's very easy to collect them as well. You just open up the crevice and we have these little devices called aspirators that we use that basically just vacuum the ants up without, without harming them. And then we bring them to the lab and, and house them. And so if you find a good location where the ants are abundant um, and you have like, you know, well, plenty of eager students to help you, mm-hmm. then you can collect something like uh, 50 colonies in the course of a day. Wow. Where do you keep these colonies? And that's, you know, we, they live in the lab. Uh, we set them up in little boxes in, in living in, the, in those crevice nests I described before. The boxes are quite small. Uh, they might be just like four inches on a side and about an inch high. Uh, and we, we treat the boxes with this substance, this slippery substance that makes the walls hard to climb so the ants can't get out. Uh, but you know, you can just imagine a shelf in our lab that might have, uh, 20 or 30 or 40 or more of these little boxes, each one with an ant colony living inside it. Uh, so we can keep many ant colonies, um, in our lab pretty comfortably. Are these colonies constantly growing or do they stop at a certain size? Yeah, they, the, Again, um, you know, some species of ants, like, for example, if I studied fire ants, which are also a very interesting ant, and, and they are pretty easy to keep in the lab. They're almost too easy to keep in the lab because they grow and grow and grow. And you can have, you know, thousands or tens of thousands of ants, uh, very energetic ants that sting and that might get out of their boxes and, and cause trouble. Uh, again, the tenothorax ants I study, since the colonies never get very large, um, it, that's not really a problem. On the other hand, they don't, I wouldn't say that they really thrive in the lab where they, the colonies grow and, um, keep growing as we keep them. Uh, they sort of stabilize, uh, but I think they're never really quite as, as happy in the lab as they would be out there, uh, living back in the forest where we collected them. Uh, so though, although they're healthy, they don't really grow and, and mm-hmm. thrive as much as they would in nature. Is it difficult to maintain these colonies so they do survive? Um, so what do your ants eat specifically? Oh, they're very, very easy. Uh, in fact, I, I have a friend who, uh, uh, Stefan Cover, who is, knows more about raising ants than anybody on earth. And he's always described Temnothorax as thriving on neglect, which is, you know, <laughs> 
we try not to <laughs> neglect them, but it's, it's, they're very, very tough. And so we feed them once a week. Uh, we feed them, um, uh, a diet that we make. It's, uh, it's an agar based diet. So it's kind of like ant jello. Uh, mm-hmm. it's got eggs in it, honey, uh, some crushed vitamin pills, a few other ingredients. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, uh, is, keeps them going pretty well. We sometimes supplement that with, uh, with small insects, say fruit flies, for example. Uh, since, you know, they, they're rather omnivorous in nature, so they eat a variety of different okay, things, okay. nectar to dead insects. All right, so let's move on to the different kinds of complex social behaviors that colonies exhibit. So can you explain foraging and a ne- nest site selection? How do those two things work? I'll, I'll talk about nest site selection mainly because that's what we, okay. that's what we learned the most about. Um, and so if you imagine the, the typical experiment we do, uh, is, is mimics a case in which, you know, you imagine a colony living happily in its crevice nest and then a, a animal comes by, say, and kicks the, the crevice and knocks the top off. So suddenly the colony is completely exposed and its home is destroyed. At that point, they need to find a new home. And we, we can imitate this in the lab just by taking one of our artificial nests and removing the roof and putting, you know, putting the colony in a big sort of tray, maybe a meter across. And then giving them some unoccupied new nests to uh, to potentially move into. And as we watch them, what will first happen is there'll be a bit of panicking that goes on, but then the ants will settle down. And then a large number of ants, uh, scout ants, will leave the nest and sort of uh, wander through this tray looking for new homes. Uh, eventually, one of them may find uh, one of the new nests we've offered, and she'll enter it. And she'll spend a lot of time in there walking around inside it, uh, antenating it, you know, feeling it with her antennae, mm-hmm. uh, coming and going, trips back and forth between that nest and, and, and the old nest. And what we, she seems to be doing is assessing the nest, you know, measuring its qualities, figuring out how good it is. Eventually, if she decides it's good enough, she'll start recruiting nestmates to visit it. And it, she does this in a very interesting way. Um, it's a behavior that's called a tandem run. Uh, probably most people know that ants uh, lay chemical trails. And they, you know, you may have seen chemical trails on the sidewalk or in your kitchen where you have a lot of ants walking in a line, mm-hmm. uh, from like, from their nest to a food source, say. These, the ants we study don't, don't do that. Instead, they, they have this behavior called tandem running where the, the scout ant who's found a nest will lead, personally lead a single fellow nestmate all the way from the old nest to this potential new nest. And it's a very distinctive behavior in which the leader ant emits a chemical signal that attracts the follower. And the follower continuously signals her presence to the leader by, by touching the leader's abdomen with her antennae. So they have this two-way communication going on that allows them to make it as a pair all the way to that new site. And then the follower who got recruited, uh, when she's arrived there, she can now make her own independent assessment of the site. And she, she would do the same thing, run around inside, uh, walk around the edges, uh, you know, measure things like entrance size, cavity size, other features. And it, again, she may also start to recruit by tender runs. And as you know, this creates a kind of snowball effect of positive feedback. And over the coming, you know, 10, 20 minutes, hour or more, uh, the population of scouts visiting the site will slowly increase, uh, through this tandem recruitment. Uh, and it turns out that if you if you follow individually marked ants, we've learned that the probability that an ant will start to do this, do this tandem running, depends on how good the site is. So if you imagine you have two different sites, uh, one of them is better than the other one. The two sites are discovered by completely different scouts, right? Because these scouts don't really communicate with each other that much. 
And but the, the better site is going to experience a faster growth of population because every ant who encounters it is going to have a higher probability that she starts to do the tanner runs. Okay. The low the poor site may also get some tanner runs, but not as many. And so that means you get this different growth of population at the two sites. And the, the, that's so that's one of the most important things about how they're able to make a decision, even though they don't have any leader. Yeah. Uh, the second really big thing that we've learned about how they do it is that business of tandem running only goes on for so long. And then they, they have a sudden change. All the tandem runs stop. And instead, the ants who had been leading tandem runs go back to the old nest and they simply pick up nest mates and carry them all the way to the new nest. And at this point, everything speeds up. When they, they just carry their nest mates, it's much faster. And so maybe three times faster even. So pretty soon, once they reach that, that threshold and they start transporting instead of tandem running, the colony gets moved very rapidly to uh, the chosen site. And the, the really the important rule that we discovered is that the ant, an individual ant makes the decision to switch uh, to transport based on a quorum rule. So basically, she's, she's monitoring how many ants have already arrived at the site she's recruiting to. And once it hits a threshold, that's when she does the switch. And that's very important for their ability to make a collective choice um, because that's once that happens at one site, and it's probably going to be the better site where it happens first, then really rapidly the whole colony gets moved there. And that therefore makes it less likely that the colony will have like an undesirable outcome like say um, um, the colony splits. You know, you might imagine a case where you get a quorum at two sites and the colony, you know, you get ants being transported to two sites and the colony is split. That's bad news. Uh, but the way they do it, makes that less likely to happen. So with the tandem running, is it only ever one ant following one leader ant? It is almost always only one. Sometimes you see uh, a little gang of ants will be following the leader, uh, but it's hard for more than one to, to remain uh, you know, attached, so to speak. Usually the extra ones will, will get lost and, and fall off. So it's rare to have more than one ant get led all the way to the, to the new nest. So wouldn't this be less efficient than just laying down a pheromone trail? You know, it, it looks remarkably inefficient. I mean, you watch them, it's almost frustrating to watch because, you know, they, <laughs> they often get lost and the, the paths are very winding. And, you know, it looks like a very inefficient way to uh, tell one ant about mm-hmm. another location. Yeah, why not just lay a trail? But we think there's good reasons why they 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 use this inefficient method. Um, one of them is that, you know, these are small colonies, and so they don't really need uh, to move a lot of ants really fast, right? There's only a couple of hundred ants in there anyway. Uh, you know, the kinds of ants who, who rely heavily on chemical trails usually have, you know, colonies with thousands of ants in them. Uh, but I think that's a more interesting reason why tanner running might be good. And that is that you don't want things to be too efficient. So, you know, if, if the recruitment was too efficient, then what you might end up doing is as soon as an ant finds any nest, and lays a trail to it, then in a very short order, the entire colony will move there if the trail is too efficient. But maybe that wasn't a very good nest, right? Maybe there was actually a much better nest that uh, not far away that the colony could have found if they hadn't moved so rapidly in the first thing they found. Mm-hmm. So sometimes it makes sense for the colony to take a little, take it slow, invest some time, and in that way, discover more options, analyze more options, and ultimately end up with a, a better decision. So how does a worker or a scout ant go about measuring the quality of a potential nest site? Yeah, that's one of the things that we're, you know, we, we probably know uh, less about than some of these other features. So if we, if you watch a, an ant inside the nest, they, as I said, they spend a lot of time in there. They wander around a lot. They make frequent visits. They go, go inside the nest and then back outside and inside again. Uh, 
They um, you know, spend a lot of time near the entrance, and we assume that they're doing that because they are um, trying to, you know, see how large the entrance is. One thing we've learned is that the colonies care about some features more than others. They're very, very concerned about how big the entrance is. So a, a big entrance is bad news, and we assume that's because it's harder to defend. They have a lot of enemies. Uh, maybe it also makes it harder to keep the internal nest environment at a ideal kind of status. Um, but they, they do care a lot about the entrance. I would say the most obvious thing in terms of how they do assessments is that they care also a great deal about the light level. So when they're inside the nest, you know, if they're inside a natural nest, like a rock crevice, it's really dark in there, right? Um, because it's made out of rock. Uh, the only way light gets in is through the entrance. So if, if you're in a crevice and it's very dark, that means that it's got nice solid walls that don't have a lot of holes in them. And which is undoubtedly a good feature in the nest. Uh, so we, it's very clear that when they're inside the nest, they're partly just using their eyes to measure how bright it is. And the brighter the light, the less they like it. So could a scouting ant adjust its behavior and how it interacts with other ants um, to recruit them back to a nest according to how, according to the quality of that nest? Is there some way yeah. they can gauge that? It's interesting. So we've looked at a lot of details of their recruitment behavior to see, is there something different? Does an ant who's found a good nest recruit differently uh, compared to an ant who's found a not-so-good nest? And in general, it, it doesn't look like it's different at all. It looks like once they decide they're going to recruit, they just recruit in a standard fashion. Like they do a tandem run uh, as best they can. Now, there may be some subtle differences uh, that, that, are, that, we, that we haven't um, detected yet. There's a little bit of evidence maybe that they're more likely to get lost, for example, if the if the uh, site isn't as good. But the only thing that's really, the really major difference is just the difference in whether they start recruiting at all. If the nest, if the nest isn't very good, then most of the time a scout goes into it, she'll end up leaving without bothering to recruit to it. If it's very good, then she will have a high probability of going back home and recruiting nest mates. And if it's kind of intermediate, then she'll have an intermediate likelihood of going back. So they kind of code their judgment of how good the nest is in terms of this probability that they start recruiting to it. Would you say that ant colonies behave like a democracy? Yeah, that's it's you know if if you compare it to say um, sometimes people talk about in in animal behavior they talk about despotic societies in which uh, there's a single uh, animal like uh, you know for example in some mammalian societies where there's a dominant male or a dominant female and that individual more or less determines what the rest of the group does like in terms of you know where it goes to feed or where it sleeps etc um ants are not like that right there's there's not like a single um um you know ant who, who gets to order everyone else uh to do uh you know what it, what that ant pleases um instead you know a large number of ants get inputs into the uh, into the outcome, I would hesitate a little bit to call it a democracy uh, for the for the reason that um, that kind of imp- a democracy to me implies that the ants might have different interests and different desires mm-hmm. and you know different uh, best outcomes and that they somehow you know come to a compromise or a majority rule decision about which of whose interests are going to win right. But I would say that at least for the ants that we study and the problems that we study, generally speaking, the ants are. In agreement, you know, they all have the same interests. They all have the same goals in mind. Everybody basically wants to find the best nest and everybody wants to make sure the colony moves as a whole to just that one nest and doesn't split. 
So in some sense, they don't really have the same need uh, to sort out conflicts of interest that uh, you might find in a, in a human democracy. Um, now, of course, that isn't necessarily true. I could be wrong about that. Uh, there's many people who study social insects, and their main interest is, in fact, potential conflict and and potential disagreements or, or differences in interests, especially about who gets to reproduce. Um, but I would say that for the kinds of problems I study, there isn't a lot of conflict of interest. And so there isn't as much of a need to, to kind of resolve differences of opinion. So no one ant wants to promote its potential nest site over the potential nest sites that are chosen by other ants. Well, it, it let's say it does, but only our assumption is, and the evidence generally supports this, our assumption is that its reasons for doing that, you know, if, if it picks a, if, if one ant is advertising the nest it's found very vigorously, it's doing that because it is judged that that nest is good for the colony rather than say that nest is good for her, that one ant, but not necessarily for the rest of the colony. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, they're kind of selfless. Okay. So as far as decision-making goes within an ant colony, it sounds like it's a combination of ants acting independently, but also relying on information they get from other ants. Is that correct? I think that's a good way of putting it, yes. So if you go from a single ant's point of view, yeah, you can basically divide up her experience into the things she detects directly herself. Like, for example, she's found a nest and she can tell for herself how good that nest is. And then the indirect cues she gets about what her nestmates are doing. And that would be, for example, following a, a tanner run takes her to a new location or something like that. Yeah. So it's a mix of individual information and social information. So your lab has published research that shows ant colonies are better at making complex choices as a group than as individual ants. Can you explain Can you explain what that means? Yes, that's something sometimes people talk about the wisdom of crowds, uh, if, that if you take a bunch of say, not very skilled or informed individuals, and you combine them together uh, to solve some problem, that they will, they will come up with a better solution than any one of them could on their own. Um, there's evidence of that in humans uh, in different settings uh, and in other animals, and we've also found evidence for it uh, in the ants. Um, so, for example, if you, you know, the ants are highly social. Really, they almost never do anything except in a social context. But it turns out you can take an individual ant out of its colony, you can put it in a, a nest box all by itself, and you can actually give it the same problems to solve that we normally give to entire colonies. So basically you can have a single ant do all the work of choosing between two nest sites and deciding which one is better. And they can do that. They're actually pretty good at doing that, even if they're all by themselves. But what we've learned is if you make the problem um, more difficult, uh, and, and one way you can do that, for example, is just take two nests and make them more and more similar in quality, right? So if two nests are really, if one nest is really much better than, than the competing nest, it's pretty easy to figure out which one is better, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but if they're very close in quality, it can be much more difficult for an individual to know which one is better. And what we found is that individual ants, if forced to solve that problem all by themselves, are not very good at it. But you can give exactly the same problem to the entire colony, and the colony is excellent at it. So basically, we, there's this, increased ability to perceive differences in quality that the group has compared to any one ant by herself. Well, Stephen, thank you so much. Oh, it's been my pleasure. That was Stephen Pratt, Associate Professor at the School of Life Sciences at Arizona State University. Up next, we have Simon Garnier. 
an assistant professor in the Department of Biological Sciences at the New Jersey Institute of Technology. Science for the People is a weekly radio show and podcast that explores everyday life from a scientific perspective. We are a member of the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on science and critical thinking. To find out where Science for the People airs near you, or to listen to past episodes, check out our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to support us at Patreon, to connect with us on Facebook and Twitter, and to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. And now, back to the show. Welcome back to Science for the People. With me now is Simon Garnier, Assistant Professor in the Department of Biological Sciences at the New Jersey Institute of Technology. Simon, welcome to Science for the People. Hey, hi. Uh, It's a pleasure to be here. So tell me about the Swarm Lab and the kind of research you do. Well, so we are an interdisciplinary lab, meaning that we are uh, using tools coming from uh, very diff- different disciplines, from physics, mathematics, and biology in particular. And we use all these tools to study how uh, large groups of insects, animals, human beings, uh, how they coordinate their activities and how sometimes this coordination goes wrong and how sometimes it goes uh, very well. What your research is about is something called swarm intelligence. So could you explain what that phrase means? Yeah, so swarm intelligence is the the uh, idea that um, under certain circumstances, groups of individuals or animals uh, will be able, when they work together, when they cooperate, um, to achieve greater outcomes together than they could achieve uh, if they were just by themselves. So it's the idea of um, that there is an intelligence above the individual, intelligence of the group that allows the group to solve problems that no individual by themselves would be able to solve. So you're saying this phrase implies that animals that form swarms behave more intelligently as a group rather than as individuals. Yes, it happens that uh, in some circumstances, some animal groups can be smarter together than they are uh, when they are by themselves. And conversely, some very smart animals like human beings sometimes as groups are less smart together than they are uh, when they are uh, left alone. So is there or are there particular characteristics about certain kinds of animals that makes them um, do better in a swarm or in a group compared to when they are just solitary? Well, so typically, um, I guess the, 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 the most common example of um, animals that behave in groups in a very, very smart way are social insects. Mm-hmm. So you can think of ants, termites, bees, honeybees in particular. Um, and one of the characteristics uh, of these groups is that um, they, all the individuals inside these colonies, um, they tend to have lost um, some form of individuality. They tend to work essentially for the good of the colony rather than for their individual uh, benefit. And when this kind of cooperation levels uh, is achieved in a group, uh, evolution will, in general, push these groups toward very high level of cooperation and the ability to uh, um, essentially produce as uh, groups very, very smart behaviors. So you specifically use ant colonies to study mm-hmm. this group coordination and behavior. So why did you choose to use ant colonies to do this? Well, ant, ant colonies, uh, ants in general, right, they, they, they sort of represent the pinnacle of social evolution. 
um, in the sense that, um, so they, they, they're part of this class of animal that we call eusocial, uh, eu meaning true in, in Greek. So it, they are the truly social animals, um, meaning that from the uh, evolutionary point of view, they are even more social than human beings. Uh, and, and the reason for that is that uh, there is, um, in, these, uh, in these animal groups, you have division of labor, meaning that each ant is going to be doing some of the tasks in the colonies, but there's also division of labor, um, or division of, of reproduction. Only some individuals will carry on the reproduction for the rest of the colony. And this is something that essentially uh, uh, mark the, the last steps toward becoming social. Uh, is when when uh, most of the individuals in the colony essentially uh, give up the the ability to reproduce, the ability to transmit their own genes, uh, in order for another individual in the colony to do that. I don't know if I make it clear, but essentially all the workers in an ant colony they work for uh, the reproductive individuals. They work for these individuals to be able to transmit their genes, and they've given up the right. Uh, or not the right, but given up the possibility to, to reproduce themselves. So would you consider that to be an altruistic behavior, giving up your ability to, to reproduce in favor yeah. of the survival of the colony as a whole? Yeah, I mean, it's the ultimate altruistic behavior from an uh, evolutionary point of view, right? Because you will not have yourself uh, a descendant, right? So that, that, that is essentially, I mean, you can't, you can't be more altruistic than that. So would you say this, is, this kind of altruistic behavior is necessary for a social group of animals to be successful? No, it's not necessary necessary at all. Uh, most social groups are not uh, eusocial. So most social groups are, are, haven't reached that point. It's like human beings, we are social species, uh, and everybody in the population uh, is uh, capable of reproducing if they, uh, if they choose to. Um, so it's not... Unnecessary condition for uh, cooperation to evolve. It's not necessary condition for uh, social life to evolve. However, once it has evolved, once you have reached this this level of sociality, um, it means that essentially um, you, you you have a very reduced risk of uh, of um, competition within the colony, essentially. Uh, individuals will not be competing anymore with each other to uh, transfer their genes to the next generation. They will all work together so that uh, one individual or a small group of individuals within the colony um, become capable of uh, transmitting their genes. So essentially, it reduces uh, strongly the amount of conflict that you have inside the society, which make, will make it easier to sort of make function. So tell me about the, the species, the kinds of ants you use to study group coordination. So, they, I mean, there are like uh, 14 or 15,000 different species of ants, and they all have very, very different uh, social organization. Um, in my group, we focus on, essentially, we, we don't necessarily care so much about the species of ants. We care mostly about the type of behavior they're capable of achieving. Uh, and the two main questions that we're exploring at the moment with ants is one has to do with how they build things together, and in particular, how they use their own bodies uh, to um, build structure uh, that will protect them um, during their lives. And uh, the second question is, is about how they um, how their supply chains work. So how do they manage to 
you know, make sure they have enough food uh, for the colony to be um, to survive uh, throughout the year. How do they um, how do they, they, they shape their uh, communication networks? How do they shape their transportation networks in order to make sure that uh, food and is always available and the colony can function properly? So for the first question that has to do with, with construction, we study a species of ants or two species of ants um, in Panama. Um, they are called army ants. Um, they are from the species Aceton burchellii and Aceton amatum. And these two species of ants have this particularity that they are nomadic. So unless, unlike uh, most ants who, you know, dig up a hole in the ground, uh, fortify uh, their nest and just never move from that particular location or rarely move from a particular location during their lifetime, these ants, they move almost every day. Every day they move from one location to another. And then during the day they hunt from that particular location. And then at night they pack up, move a few hundred meters away, reestablish a colony there hunt again the next day, et cetera, et cetera. And what's fascinating with these ants is that uh, in order to achieve this nomadic lifestyle, uh, they have developed a, a bunch of behavioral adaptations that allow them to build temporary structures out of their own bodies. So they can build uh, bridges and ladders along the way, which allow them to uh, overcome obstacles uh, along uh, their migration trails. Um, at the site that they decide to stay at every day, they build a structure which is called a bivouac, which is a, a, a sort of like football-sized, um, yeah, football-sized blob of ants all attached to each <laughs> other. It's it's literally what it is. I mean, it, it looks like a blob of ants, um, and they all attach to each other, and and they use this structure to essentially protect the brood and protect the queen uh, from uh, the environment. And then every day or every night, this structure can dismantle, move uh, a few hundred meters away, and then reassemble at a new location. And that particular behavior is like particularly fascinating because it's it's unlike anything else we see in ants, and it has a lot of um, uh, potential application um, for like the development of of a new generation of robots, for instance, that will um, not be. It, that will be capable of essentially of, of forming structure that conform to any sort of um, environment that they find. The fire ants, they make that kind of blob-shaped yeah. structure yeah, so as well when there's flooding, right? Mm-hmm. So fire ants is another uh, species of ants that also form structure out of their own bodies. Uh, what fire ants do, we don't study them, but there's a, a fantastic lab in, in Georgia Tech, the lab of David Hu, that studies them very uh, very nicely. Um, so what they do is when, when they're, uh, the place they live gets flooded very regularly. Uh, and so they have this adaptation where when water comes, they sort of, they, they form these rafts by attaching to each other. And this raft essentially can float over the water for several hours or even days until they can reach another patch of dry land and then rebuild their colonies from there. So there, there is a, um, many examples of uh, social insect species and ant species that are capable of forming structure of their own bodies. What makes the army ants really, really special is that um, they do this every day. It's not because of particular circumstances, life circumstances. Mm-hmm. They have to do this every single day. So they've really evolved uh, um, specialized behavior to be able to form this structure small. We can have structures that are just, you know, five or six ants to structure that are 100, 200,000 uh, uh, mm-hmm. of ants 
So they are capable of forming structure over this really wide range of uh, conditions and size. Um, but yeah, you, you will find, I mean, you can see if you, if you, if you look at honeybees, for instance, honeybees, when they swarm, they form this sort of like blob of bees attached to a branch, usually while all the bees are looking for a new nesting site. And that's a form of uh, what we call living architecture. Um, but it's done in one particular uh, condition uh, during their life, which is when they are to swarm. So they have to leave there, the safety of the nest to find a new nest site. Uh, Armians do this on a daily basis um, at all scales and in pretty much all environments that they, uh, they encounter. So can you explain how the army ants work together to make these living constructions? Yeah, I mean, it's um, uh, the funny thing, it's, it's, it's not been studied a lot. Um, there's been a lot of description of their structure in the literature, but um, except for a few, uh, few studies over the past 10 years, not many people have, have looked into uh, how they form these structures. So we are still really at the early stages of understanding how they do this. Um, what we know and what we have studied so far um, in, in relative uh, details is the, the, the bridges they form along their trails. So the, you have to imagine, so it's in, in the tropical forest. The ground is not really smooth and flat. It's a lot of, uh, a lot of up and ups and downs, a lot of, uh, gaps that they have to, um, to bridge. And these ends have sort of developed this behavior where they can form bridges in between, uh, across gaps in order to essentially smooth out the terrain for the other ends moving along the trail. And what we think happens is as soon as they reach an area where there is a gap, essentially ends, uh, the ends that have to go down the gap slow down, which allow the ants to walk over them. And that's the signal for the ants if you want to stop and, and start trying to figure out uh, a way to bridge that gap. Um, so essentially, it's, it's to, if, if you, you have to slow down and then someone walks over you, it's a signal for the end to stop and then try to find a way to attach yourself to uh, something else in order to try to bridge the gap. Mm-hmm. Now, if you repeat this, that's for one end, but if you repeat this for multiple ends and they start attaching to each other, they will start forming these bridges. And these bridges are, are, are not like stable structure. They are structures that are uh, dynamic. They keep changing over time. Uh, they keep being remodeled. They can even move over time. We've shown that um, the ends, the bridge of the ends is going to be moving over time to try to find an optimal position. So sort of like bridge, uh, find the optimal location where to put a bridge uh, in the environment. And, um, and, and these structures are going to be extremely reactive to traffic. If there's a lot of traffic on the trail, um, then these structures are going to grow with the traffic. And as soon as the traffic is interrupted, the structure is going to dismantle itself. So essentially, if the structure is needed, it's going to build itself. And if the structure is not needed anymore, it dismantles itself. Um, so it's it's pretty fantastic, right? It's like a, it's a bridge on demand. It's, a, it's, a, it's literally <laughs> what it is. Um, um, and and that allowed them to... Uh, to, to roam the, 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 the forest, the, the tropical forest at very, very high tempo. Uh, I mean, some of these guys have been, have been measured at something like 13 or 14 centimeters per second, which is, uh, about like 14 times their body length. Mm. Uh, I mean, it's like they, they, you have an army of fusion boat running through the tropical forest. And then every time there is a gap somewhere that all these fusion boats attach to each other to form a bridge, allowing the other fusion boats to run even faster 
across the forest. Um, and, and that makes them extremely, extremely efficient uh, in this environment that is uh, both extremely uh, uh, adverse to movement and also completely unpredictable for them because it's not like they can predict what the terrain is going to look like uh, every day because every day they move to a new location. So it's kind of hard to imagine how the ants figure out how to fill gaps by creating a bridge. So does it work like this where you have, say, a gap between mm-hmm. two surfaces and there's water between the two surfaces. Um, does one ant start to make a bridge at one point and then another individual climbs on top of that individual and then you have another one on top of them, kind of like, you know, a cheerleading pyramid? Um, or do you have ants coming in from both sides of the gap and then coming together at the center to form a stable bridge? Yeah, so um, the most complex bridges, we, we think they are formed... Um, from a position where two objects intersect with each other. Uh, so imagine you have two branches intersecting with each other, uh, meaning that the ants can follow the branch, one branch, and then jump on the next one, and then follow the other branch back. So when you have this sort of structure, um, it's a bit hard to describe um, with words, but um, if you imagine this sort of like triangle, this sort of like uh, triangular shape formed by, uh, by these two branches, uh, at the tip of uh, of the branch, uh, ants were always trying to shortcut as much as they can. An ant is going to essentially step into this gap at the tip of um, the intersection. And then other ants are going to be walking over it. So it's going to form a tiny little bridge. But then by walking over it, they, they shortcut a little bit that deviation and it sort of allow them to walk over um, to, to increase um, the size um of the chain essentially. So they can attach each other to increase the size of the chain. And then once the chain is increased, the chain can move down this, this sort of triangular shape um, and, and then move to, uh, to, to sit in place at a location where two ends could not actually bridge uh, directly the, the, um, the gap. I don't know if it's really clear what I'm explaining. It's really hard without images <laughs> to explain what's happening. Um, but it's, it's, uh, essentially what they're doing is they, they start at a location where, uh, an ant or two ants can bridge the, the gap. And then, uh, other ants join in the, the, the chain. And by joining the chain, they allow the chain to move to a location where the gap will, um, be even larger. And then other ants can join, which allow them to move at a location where the gap will be even larger, et cetera, et cetera. So it's a moving chain, moving and growing chain of ants that then can, end up at a position where it's completely suspended in midair. Um, and so you look, if, if you just arrive at the location and you just see the, the chain suspended in midair, you have, you can't know how they're building this because it looks like it's, it's built out of, uh, nothing, because uh, no ant is long enough to reach out to the other side. Um, and it's literally what they do is they start from a position where they can bridge and then make this chain that increase in size and then move along the gap. Uh, and try to find like an optimal position along that gap. So for the ant colonies, ants, ant colonies have these different castes, like you've mentioned before. So you have the workers, the soldiers, you have a queen, um, you might have multiple queens. So, mm-hmm. but for the case of the ant colony, the queen does not actually give instructions to the other workers as to what they should do. So in the process of, say, making a bridge with the army ants, you don't have the queen kind of standing there telling them how to make the bridge, right? So how did the... Would you say that the coordination of ant colonies works best because there is no one individual who is in charge? 
Yes. So the way the way it works is exactly what you say. It's it's there's no one in charge in the colony. The, we call the queen the queen just because it's the biggest uh, individual in the colony, and it's also the one that's in charge of doing all the reproduction work. Um, but the queen doesn't give uh, instructions to the workers. It's uh, the the way it works is very decentralized. It's um it's it's what we call a self-organizing system. So it's a system in which uh, the organization emerges from uh, the multiple and repeated interactions between all the individuals in the colony uh, and not because there is some sort of uh, pre-established plan or some sort of hierarchy or some sort of, uh, um, you know, magical being that organize um, the action of everybody in the colony. So in this sense, it's very different from the way we human beings tend to uh, understand organization. We tend to to like or to create organization that is very uh, hierarchical, very pyramidal, where there's someone at the top and then instructions um, sort of flow down from the top of the pyramid and then information about the state of the activities flow back up um, the pyramid. The problem of this type of organizations is it it works very well if you have small groups. Uh, It tends to become extremely difficult to maintain and extremely extremely difficult to... um, uh, to steer one way or another once the, the, the organization becomes, uh, becomes too large. Uh, and this is even uh, more true when you think of social insects and ants in particular, because these individuals have like very tiny brains, like 200 or 300,000 neurons at most. And therefore you can't really imagine that there's a single individual in that colony uh, who would be capable of um, having the, the, the cognitive abilities to sort of organize and like plan the activity of everybody. So it's one of the first problems. The second problem is once you have these very large organizations, uh, communication becomes a, a real bottleneck um, because it becomes very difficult for one single individual to send in, uh, orders to everybody at once. And then from this, for this particular individual to also receive uh, feedback from all the, uh, the rest of the, the colony or the rest of the organization. So instead, what they use is they use a, a decentralized mode of functioning. This idea that um, if you react appropriately to the behavior of the individual around you, and then you have this sort of cascading effect. So I do something that makes you more likely to do something, uh, the same thing that makes someone more likely to do the same thing, etc. Um, that's a very powerful mean of organizing uh, a group without requiring any centralization of information or any planification. Do you think that even with this decentralization, that it could get to be more difficult to to coordinate with more ants within a colony, does communication break down at a certain point? So that's the um, that, that that that's where there is a there's a sweet spot, right? You in terms of the the how this system functions, there are conditions in which um, you know the range of communication that you have and the type of reaction you have to the behaviors uh, allow you to scale up. Uh, the colonies to very, very large sizes. I mean, some colonies of leafcutter ants can reach something like 20 million individuals inside a single colony. A uh, colony of army ants, some of the largest one, are 2 million individuals, and then these guys have to move through the forest and migrate every day. So um, you can, under certain conditions, have self-organizing mechanisms that are, are capable of scaling up very, very efficiently at very, very large sizes. Now, um, what it requires is it requires like very good um, and, and 
very specific type of communication and again, very specific reaction to uh, this, this, the, the information you get through this communication. Now what ants use mostly for communication is, um, I mean, they use two different, ki- I mean, many different kinds of information, but the, the sort of the, the, the two dominant ways are, are chemicals, uh, so pheromones that they use to organize their work and also tactile stimuli. Uh, so ants are going to uh, touch each other and smell each other a lot. And this, and they're also going to leave traces in the environment using pheromone, but also by modifying the structure of the environment. And this um, two sort of mechanism, this uh, direct tactile communication and this sort of long lasting traces in the environment uh, will allow the colony to organize itself both very efficiently at a very local dynamic level, but also over very large scales. All right. Um, so you also conduct research on swarm robotics in your lab. So can you explain what these robots look like and what they do? So I, I used to. I do not do a lot of robotics anymore. <laughs> um, though I collaborate now with roboticists. So the, my lab focuses mostly on the biology side and mm-hmm. on the modeling of these systems. And then we collaborate with roboticists um, essentially to develop uh, new um new strategies to organize the, the, the work of groups of robots. Um, so the principle behind the swarm robotics, the idea is that um, we have two options when we build robots. We can try to build them as smart as possible and as, uh, as complex as possible so they can do everything. And the problem of this strategy is it's extremely costly. And, uh, and if, you know, because it's costly, you can only build a, a limited number of units. And if one of these units fails, then, well, you've lost a lot of money. And then, uh, your, whatever task you're trying to achieve is going to become, uh, extremely difficult because, uh, because you've lost your robot. So some robotics take the completely opposite approach. The idea is to build as many, um, standardized units as possible. So we can have like very low cost of productions. Um, and we have, we want to have them as simple as possible. Um, so we can build as many as possible. Uh, now the problem with that approach is that you end up with very stupid robots, uh, tiny robots, um, that are capable of very, very little by themselves. And so that's where, um, uh, if we can use ideas from swarm intelligence, we might be able to design uh, algorithm and, and mechanism of organization. We can take all these stupid little robots and have them work together to achieve smart, uh, or smarter outcomes. Um, and so during my PhD in particular, I, I worked, uh, a lot implementing, uh, algorithms from, uh, ants in particular, but also cockroaches in uh, tiny little robots called Alice, um, to show that we were capable of uh, with these stupid robots, having them work together to find, for instance, find like the shortest path inside a, a, a maze. Uh, so you can imagine like you're trying to find what is the shortest path to access some sort of resource in environments. So or if you have a collapsed building and you want to find the shortest path to reach a person that's under that building, um, instead of using, you know, you cannot send a big complex robot in that, but you can send an army of tiny little robots that by working together will be able to find the path to that particular person and also find the fastest path to get to that person. Uh, and so that's the, that was the motivation essentially behind, um, behind this work. Now, um, currently we're working with people at Harvard, uh, Radikan Akbar at Harvard and, um, Michael Binstein at Northwestern University, uh, who are both roboticists. 
and we are interested in how we can use robots, uh, how we can make robots attached to each other, essentially, to build this mm. uh, structure, um, but structure that can be built in any f- condition, essentially, because one of the problem of construction, human construction, is essentially we have a sort of like Lego stacking approach to things, where we have like a very standardized bricks, mm. and then we put them on top of each other. And the problem of this kind of structure is that they can't reconfigure themselves if the environment changes. They can't be built anywhere. We have to uh, sometimes prepare the terrain before you can build something. Um, the idea would be here to have sort of like smart bricks, if you want, that can attach to each other and, and, and then build themselves into any sort of configuration, any sort of object that we want in any uh, conditions um, that we uh, throw at them. Uh, and so with this roboticist right now, what we're working on is trying to understand the behavior of the armies. How do they, how are these individuals who are, you know, not super, super smart, uh, almost completely blind, uh, who only rely on tactile and chemical communication and like very simple form of that. Um, how are they capable of forming these structures that are compliant to many, many different environments? And how can we use what we understand from um, these ends and then port, port this, you know, these behaviors to robots? So these two people work on developing the robotic side. I work on trying to understand what the ends do. And then we meet in the middle um, at the modeling stage, right? We, we build together a computer and mathematical model of what's happening. And, and that's sort of the, the mathematical model or the computer model is a sort of the, the translation between what we understand from the biology and what, um, what we're capable of doing with the robots. And we can then translate the language of the ant into the language of the robots and vice versa. Well, why would you use robots to study army ant colony behavior? Why not just stick with the actual ant colonies? Well, it's very hard to uh, study ant colonies in the field. Uh, you have to go out, you have to find them. It's really difficult sometimes to uh, even get access to uh, some of these ants. Um, I mean, we spend sometimes like two or three months in the field, and then we come back with maybe 10 experiments, mm-hmm. 10 replicates. Uh, so that's a lot of time. That's a lot of money uh, that's invested in trying to understand how they work. Um, robots, on the other end, can be um, to some extent manufactured relatively quickly, and they can help us um, figure out like, proof of concepts of our theory about the ants, right? The idea is if we have a mechanism general enough that it works in robots and that it looks like it works in ants, then we can say we have understood something about uh, how, how biological systems are capable of um, building them, themselves up. Um, so the idea is that the robots are here as a, as a physical proof of concepts of our theory about how the ants are, are functioning. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure. If you want to learn more about Stephen Pratt or Simon Garnier, you can check out their links in the social media on our website at www.scienceforthepeople.ca. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week on Science for the People. Science for the People is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. Helen Quivillon is our publishing liaison. We get research help from Josh Witten and consulting support from Desiree Shell. Our frequently seen guest hosts are Marion Kilgour, Anika Hazra, and Jessica Yaros. Our theme song is called Binary Consequence, and it was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern. Science for the People is entirely listener-supported. 
You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount, or you can send us a one-time donation in any amount via the donate page of our website. Science for the People is created in partnership with the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on the intersection of science, popular culture, politics, and social justice. You can find out more about Skeptic at skeptic.org. The show is hosted by science news writer Bethany Brookshire and me, Rochelle Saunders. 